Hi, everybody. This is Richard Sachs, your host for Lost Arts Radio. This is our show for Worldwide Broadcast on Sunday, the 5th of November, 2017. Hope you're all doing well, and it's nice to be back with you again. We have a treat with us uh, tonight. We have the chance to uh, talk with Bill Warner again, Dr. Bill Warner, who's the expert on Islam and, and author of a number of great books, which I found it very helpful to read to finally understand something about Islam because I, all these things were going around that people were saying about it. This was, I don't know, a while back, more than a year. And I had read the Quran once and I didn't really understand what I read. Um, and I needed to have, you know, not the opinion of a scholar or a bunch of imams or people that were really learned saying what they thought it meant. I wanted to know what Muhammad thought it meant and what he had written that was considered the basics of the whole religion belief system and I was able to do that because of the clear correlation of all the original texts by Dr. Warner and I consider that of tremendous value and since then I have a, a much better understanding of the whole teaching of Islam and I found out that yeah, many of my Muslim friends who I really like and get along with really well, some of them have the understanding of that and many of them don't and even though they've recited it since, you know, before they could read or anything. Um, they still, some of them don't have a complete picture, and I, I recommend Dr. Warner's books at politicalislam.com, not only to Muslims, but non-Muslims, and anybody that's interested in knowing more about um, relig world religions, I think the ones that are really important and are affecting the world right now, world events, it, it's better to just go and read the original scriptures and doctors warner's work is just a, a guide to that encouraging everybody to go find out for themselves and i think that's great so as for today's discussion you'll remember that we had a series with dr warner looking at issues like women in islam and slavery in islam and um, the life of muhammad and things like that which were great and i recommend people go back and listen to the archives too get up on all those things because it continues to be of extreme relevance to world events. Um, but for today's discussion, I thought, um, first of all, I was thinking, let's do more history, but then I thought, well, let's put that in more immediately relevant context rather than just history. And um, there's this thing people talk about when, when Islam, when people who are following Islam strictly, according to the three strict uh, scriptures move into a new country and this started right from the time of Muhammad that there's a protocol that they have to go through according to their own religion that says in their scriptures they have to take over that country as a step to taking over the whole planet to make sure that there are no non-Muslims left except maybe temporarily some that are slaves and um so they start doing that, and, and that's the basis of getting, or one basis of getting into paradise, and we'll see if Dr. Warner agrees that I'm saying this accurately. Today I want to look at the um, history of that happening in various countries, and then see if it's true that any version of it is happening in America and Europe, and we could probably have, you know, ten shows on that and not scratch the surface, but I want to at least start. And today is especially relevant work recording this before it's actually being broadcast because all of our guests have such intense schedules we have to record when we can with them so this is 
actually being recorded on Wednesday, November 1st, and it's very appropriate because it's marked by a new truck attack in New York City with the driver yelling, Allahu Akbar. So um, this is in right in line with what we're discussing, that that being part of a bigger picture and not just one crazy person doing something disconnected from the rest of world events. So welcome, Dr. Warner. I hope I didn't mess it up too much describing it incorrectly. I, th- I think you have it pretty correct, sir. Okay. Glad to be here. Yeah, I'm really happy that you're here. It's always fun to have you as a guest. I learn a tremendous amount. And um, so I'm thinking of, you know, the best place to start a discussion, because this time is going to go back by so quickly. Um, what? Let's start with the general idea of what does the religion of Islam say should be the role of good Muslims following the scriptures in relating to other countries and other populations? Well, there, every Muslim is told to follow the example of Muhammad. And Muhammad's example in the matter of politics is what we're interested in here. Uh, I'm not so much interested in the purpose of prayer and charity and that work as much as I am the fact that the thing, the reason that Islam is so useful for you and me, Richard, is that we're included in it. Now, you may have never said the Shahada, and you may have never gone to the mosque, but you are still in Islam. You may not be a Muslim, but Islam has a place for you, and you're called the Kafir, the non-Muslim. And what they want from you and me is that we subjugate ourselves to the Sharia. Whether or not we become Muslims or not is of secondary importance, as long as we allow Sharia to rule the land. Mm. So that's basically the uh, background here. Muhammad had two phases to his life. The religious phase, he preached the religion of Islam for 13 years and persuaded 150 Arabs to become Muslim. Then he left Mecca, went to Medina, and in Medina he became a politician and a jihadist. After 10 years of this, when he died, every Arab on the Arabian Peninsula was a Muslim. Now, what he had to do to do this was to be involved with, we have a precise counting of 95 acts of jihad in nine years' time. So that's basically 10 acts of jihad a year, actually closer to 11. So we can see here that Muhammad gives us the religion and Muhammad gives us jihad and politics. So uh, as a matter of fact, since today there's been this truck attack, or yesterday this truck attack uh, as a form of jihad, Everyone reported that when the man stepped out of the car, he yelled, Allahu Akbar. Now, some people say that means God is great, but that is wrong on two counts. It's Allah, not God, because Allah is particularly uh, prescribed and defined in the Quran. And the other is, is that he said, Allahu Akbar, God is greater. The first time this phrase is used in the life of Muhammad is when he invaded Kaibar which was a Jewish town outside of Medina where he lived, noticed that he had to leave Medina to go attack the Jews. That is, they did not come and attack him, but he left Medina and went and he, Allahu Akbar was what he said when they attacked. So, right. when, Also, let me just interject one thing. When they attacked the Jews, I've heard this talked about um, by Muslim scholars, actually, um, saying that this was just a war that was going on between the Muslims and the Jews, but that gives a little bit of a different perspective because it sounds like, you know, war between two countries just fighting with each other. It it wasn't exactly like that, right? 
Well, when Muhammad grew, uh, grew up in Mecca, where he first became a prophet, there were no Jews in Mecca. So the Jews, the town of Medina was half Jewish when Muhammad moved there, and there were three tribes. Two or three years later, there were no Jews left. Now, it's not clear how the Jews attacked Muhammad, but nevertheless, the result was, no matter what happened, when it was over, at the end of two or three years, there were no more Jews left in Medina. So call it what you want, defensive war, offensive war, they were gone. And it's also there that Muhammad recorded 95 acts of jihad. Now, whether these were defensive or offensive, I'm not saying, but I will say this, that when you leave your home turf to go to some other place, it's kind of hard for me to say that you're making something defensive. Right, right, right. Okay, so um, I inter interfered anyway. You were up to the point where he was um, the first uh, instance of somebody saying Allahu Akbar. Well, I just wanted to make clear that the, when the gentleman today, when yesterday, when he yelled Allahu Akbar, he was not making anything up. And this is very important to understand. When Muslims commit acts of jihad, they're not making anything up. They're not crazy, uh, nor are they really filled with hate, necessarily. Mm -hmm. uh, it is said that this gentleman was uh, quite happy with what he had done, yeah. and he was doing what Allah demanded. So therefore, he had the right to be happy. Right, I just saw a commentary, uh, I, not that I watch regular television anymore at all, but, but indirectly saw a video from CNN where one of their commentators, I think it was Jake Tapper, one of the well-known ones, was saying, yes, this guy did uh, clearly yell Allahu Akbar after killing these people and running over them, but usually we hear that phrase under the most beautiful circumstances, uh, that it, it's part of something really wonderful, and unfortunately, some of the time, it's uh, something like this. But this is perfect, because Islam is both peaceful. Muhammad practiced the religion of peace in Mecca for 13 years. Then when he went to Medina, he became a jihadist and a politician. Which one is the real Muhammad, the praying Muhammad or the jihad Muhammad? The answer is yes. So this ambiguity of Allahu Akbar, which is repeated 17 times a day if you're a devout Muslim, uh, is true. That is, it is part of prayer, and if you want to call prayer beautiful, by the way, I would instruct Mr. Tapper that when he calls this under the most beautiful of circumstances, that perhaps he ought to know more than he does before he appears on national television. And I that is reading this. a teleprompter doesn't really require that, but I'll, Ooh, I'll wicked point there, Richard. <laughs> but... <laughs> Maybe I was giving him too much credit for even thinking, he was thinking <laughs> yeah. on his own. But uh, anyway, this is the other thing that's repeated 17 times a day is uh, the Surah 1, chapter 1 of the Quran, in which the last verse, verse 7, I believe, maybe 9, but I think it's 7, can, where Muslims pray to follow the straight path, not like those, of the, those who anger Allah, nor those who have gone astray. Those who anger Allah are the Jews, and those who have gone astray are the Christians. So notice here in this Allahu Akbar, Allah is greater, that the Muslim is always in competition. He must be the best. The best of the gods of the various religions, in other words. They, yes, he's better than any of them. I, so this beautiful situation, which Mr. Tapper refers to, we now think off the teleprompter, includes the fact that the, it is a condemnation of Jews and Christians every time they pray, and this is done 17 times a day. 
Okay, so even though it's in the regular prayers and you're not specifically mentioning other religions, you're saying that's that's what it always means. Right. Those who anger Allah, and there's a hadith about this. I, once again, I'm not making this stuff up, Richard. I, I okay. just I try to speak with the voice of Muhammad and the, the ideas of Allah. Yeah. That is that, well, just that. I mean, that it is better. The Muslim is always in a competition. He's never just part of society. He has to be the best. Now, the best here is by his own definitions. Okay, and you're saying the first time that Muhammad is recorded as saying Allahu Akbar was in the battle with Kaibar, right? If I yes. Guess, is that right? Mm-hmm. The Jews of Kaibar. Okay. So, it, 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 this use of the phrase Allahu Akbar perfectly illustrates the dual nature of Islam. And it's the fact that, Richard, there's only one kind of person who says that Islam is a religion. And that is a person who doesn't have much knowledge or someone who's trying to deceive you. But Islam is a complete civilization. It is a political system. It is a cultural system. It is a religious system. It is all of these things. So it is not just the religion of Islam. We need, as I'll say this again. If, it, if Islam were just a religion, I would, would not be talking to you now because the subject wouldn't have any of interest to me. Well, the only reason that I tend to refer to it as a religion is if you do the political part, you go to paradise. And to me, you know, if, if there were no religion in that political part, they'd have a lot less to offer the people doing the work. It's true. Again, it is a complete civilization. There is nothing that Islam needs from us at all. They have their own way of doing everything, including going to the bathroom. The details of what it requires to be a Muslim as found in the Hadith and traditions of Muhammad are excruciatingly detailed. How to knock on a door, how to drink a glass of water, how to have sex, when to have sex, what to eat, what not to eat. The list is without limit. Okay. So, would you say that, is it accurate to say that the, the extermination of the Jews or getting them to leave their land and be exiled, that that was the first time that the uh, Muhammad's followers were actually going and taking territory of other people? Is that the first expansionist movement? Actually not. No? The first expansion was against the pagans, the polytheists, uh, Muhammad's relatives and ancestors in the town of Mecca. He attacked Mecca first. As a matter of fact, let's be clear here, because we're going to be discussing the world history involving Islam. Yeah. Muhammad attacked every single neighbor that he had. One of the expressions of the golden rule is to be a good neighbor. And uh, Muhammad was not the kind of neighbor you wanted because he would attack you. And he would attack you until you agreed to submit to the Sharia. That's what happened with the Jews of Kaibar was that they surrendered, and so Muhammad took possession of their land, and they signed a contract, a dhimma, which made them dhimmies, right. and they agreed that they would give him half of their income. They would work the land, and they also agreed that they would not resist anything about Islam in the public marketplace. Now, this is where it gets tricky. Islam says, we give protection to the Jews, and that is true. The Jews were protected as long as they agreed to let Muhammad have all the power half the income, and do exactly what he said, and to not oppose him in any public manner. They could still be Jews inside their house, but they were no longer Jews in a political sense of having a civilizational force in their own community. So who is he going to protect them from? Uh, that's an interesting question. <laughs> they is were, that like the kind of protection you get in, 
in the city from the mob boss there that is going to protect you from his own employees if you pay the money? Yes, you're exactly correct. You're buying protection. And this protection has a name. It's called the jizya. Okay. So there's two ways to submit if Muhammad's people attack you. One is to do that. The other is to become Muslim. Yes, either one works. And people have a misunderstanding. They think that Muslims want to come into a country and, and uh, convert everybody. That's the long-term plan. What, here's the deal. In all of the nations that we're going to talk about today, they started out with a native culture of some sort. For instance, Turkey, Asia Minor, was Christian. When, the, when Islam invaded, they did not say to every Christian, convert or die. This is wrong. This is not the way it happens. That does happen upon occasion, but against individuals. Okay. What he said was, is that you have to live under the Sharia. So that as a consequence, in Turkey, for instance, the Christians, although they were still Christian, and they were, quote, protected, that is, as long as they paid the jizya, the tax, they mm -hmm. would not be attacked. But what happens is, is that destroys the native civilization. Because as a Christian living in Turkey, after the conquest, or Syria, or any of the other countries, what happens is, is that you're no longer a citizen, you're now a slave. And by that I mean, if there's a lawsuit, if you have, if you have a Muslim business partner, and he cheats you in some way, then you cannot take him to court and sue him, because you as a kafir, a non-Muslim, and as a mm -hmm. demi, agreeing to live under the Sharia, may not testify in court. Okay. So if you take situations where you can't fight back, that is, if you're on the street and young Muslim boys throw rocks at you and your daughter and your wife, you can't fight back. Right, right. You also can't, you also can't have a church that's higher than a surrounding mosque. And I've seen churches built under these circumstances in the Balkans, where in order to get the necessary interior space, they dug down so that when you walk into the church, instead of walking up steps, you walk down steps. Mm -hmm. Because okay. this is all part of being the demi. You must be subjugated, again, in all things, including how high your buildings are. Okay. And the tax that you mentioned, is that a 50% tax? That varies. That varies. But 50% 50 50 was the first, which is a uh, fairly high tax rate. But the, but the real thing is the degradation. You're no mm -hmm. longer a proud human being of your community. You must, in all cases, subjugate yourself. If your daughter is raped, you can't go to the police with it. Okay, so this is, uh, looking at the two options, if, if there's an invasion like that, um, an Islamic invasion, you have two options to, to be protected from the invaders, by the invaders, and one of them is to become a dhimmi like that, and the other is to become Muslim. So, what are the pros and cons of each? What if those guys say, well, we don't want to do the tax, we'll just be Muslim? Oh, well, then all of a sudden your income doubles, if your tax is gone, you now have status, you can, uh, you, if you can enter into lawsuits, you can defend yourself, you can carry a sword, you can ride a horse, for instance. Mm -hmm. And you can, be, you can b join the military and have rank as an officer. So there are all manner, if you, once you, and this is what happens. The conversion of Turkey to Christian, from Christian to Islamic, required centuries. They invaded in, uh, invasion started in, uh, soon after Muhammad died, but before its conquest was in actual 1453, the final date of the collapse of, the, of Constantinople, which became, uh, con well, where did it go? Anyway, Constantinople, I forget the name of it today. Uh, well, it was Istanbul before, right? Constantinople, now it's Istanbul. Oh, okay, yeah, it was Istanbul now, okay. Right, right, right. 
So, but anyway, that took centuries to happen. And what the centuries were involved with was Christians who got tired of the degradation, the poverty, and the cruelty of being a demi and just the subjugation in general. And then you, uh, you become a Muslim and all of a sudden life is good. You now have power. You're now fully accepted. And by the way, you'll be treated really well. So, uh, other than the fact that you have to give up what you believe, are there any downsides that you start suffering once you convert and, and do it that way? No. In Islam, once you convert, you're fully accepted. There is no, um, no there, there's not a residual cont- contaminant of being a, a kafir, a non-Muslim. I mean, you're fully accepted. Uh, they're very good about that because you see... <clears throat> When you say the Shahada, all your sins are forgiven, all your errors are forgiven, all your mistakes are forgiven, so therefore, life is good. Okay, so the only issues, might be other than the fact that you might, you know, have a problem with the belief system that's not yours, but if, you happen, that. if you happen to be a woman or gay or, I don't know if there's any other categories like that, then you don't necessarily have great uh, freedom and power, right? Well, you do have some problems at that point, yes. Uh, I was talking about just the ordinary person who didn't. But what happens is, uh, for the Christian living, or any other faith group who lives within a a group, a country that's been conquered. Now, Mm -hmm. notice we're talking here about conquest, all right? That is the... um, actual invasion. This is not what's happening now in America because Islam no has Islam no longer has the ability to invade with force. As Islamic State found out, it's a big mistake to find to uh, go up against people with modern weapons. Islam has not done well in modern warfare. They're not skilled at it. And there's a whole bunch of reasons for that, but we won't go into them. Okay. But they can, they can, if they have the assistance of the country being invaded, the rulers of it, for purposes of uh, destroying the society there and other reasons that they're working on that, then they can just be brought in with the help of the victim country, and that's a whole different situation, right? Yes. What we have now is, is that due to the, our immigration policies in Europe and the United States and other countries, is you no longer need to bring guns and, and force the authorities to let Muslims move in. We say, oh, we're happy to do so. Here, we'll even give you welfare while you get a job. Right. I think the United Nations is actually doing most of the work of making sure that happens now under their program called Cultural Enrichment, if I remember right. Uh, Yeah, well, it's a cultural enrichment of a certain sort. Remember, the man who committed the jihad yesterday came in under, I love this, a diversity visa. Yes, exactly. And what that diversity means, Richard, is that neither you nor I could have get a visa on this because we're not diverse enough. We're uh, not diverse enough. Yeah, it's like, it's kind of a paraphrasing of the old animal farm. Uh, yes. Some people are more diverse than others. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so, um, now we're talking about invasion. Is, is invasion actually... Um, Something that the script, the Islamic scriptures ask people to participate in? Well, we uh, the scripture of the Sirah of Muhammad, the life of Muhammad, gives the perfect example of how to be the perfect Muslim. Okay. And he entered, once he entered Medina and turned to jihad, he committed, I love this number, 95 acts of jihad in nine years' time. I mean, that's a lot of jihad. So that's his living example. And once he had taken, first, his first step was to Islamicize what was immediately around him. 
only then, after that was firmed up and the conquest was done, did he then start leaving uh, Arabia and going into Syria. Mm-hmm. And uh, this, the conquest of Syria was to be left later to Abu Bakr and Omar. So Syria was the first foreign country that was yes. targeted for yes. invasion. And when you say 95 acts of jihad, what's an act of jihad by that definition? Well, these were all acts of... You've asked an interesting question here because there's different kinds of jihad. Yeah, because you know, I've, I've been told by some people that jihad is struggling to be a better person. That is, that is true. That is exactly true. The, the thing about Islam is it's so conflicting to people is, is that you can, you can have conflicts within Islam and people want to say, well, which one is the real one? The peaceful Islam or the political Islam? Mm-hmm. And the answer is yes. Because we, we want to say, well, if you're peaceful, then you're not attacking people with military war. And Islam, no, we're very peaceful. We're the religion of peace. But yes, we will attack you and commit acts of jihad. Well, don't those two things contradict each other? No, because our idea of contradiction does not apply in this case. Both modes of action are contained within the doctrine of Islam. And if they're both included, then they're both equally good. Okay, so so when you're committing an act of jihad that requires that you just have to kill people, you're actually doing it for peace, because when there are no more non-Muslims, it will be very Then peaceful. there will be peace. Right, okay. Now, now, the stinker in this whole thing is, is that we find in the example, once again, of Muhammad. And by the way, you, I, thank you for mentioning my books, but what I would say to people about my books is, I find the whole story of Islam to be fascinating. Once you step into the world... It is a world where everything has two meanings and everything is upside down. It's like a science fiction. But I think it's just incredibly fascinating. Yeah, so, I had that feeling too. I mean, I didn't read the books forcing myself to go through them. They were incredible. Yeah. As a matter of fact, the Hadith is there's a potato chip ad which goes like this. I bet you can't eat just one. And if you hand somebody a no, book of Hadith, I bet you can't read just one. That's right. I couldn't. It was amazing. So, <laughs> and I, I love to, to un- try to understand history and people's belief systems and things like that because um, it gives you a better understand a way to comprehend what's going on in the world I think so anyway you, before I interrupted you were saying that Syria was the first external country yeah I guess it was some of the caliphs that were right after Muhammad that led invasions there and the yes. reason they did is they were following Muhammad's perfect example exactly it is precisely true. Now, the first caliph did not do much attacking outside of Islam because what happened was when Muhammad died, all of the people who had converted to Islam who were Arabs said, you know, we've enjoyed being Muslim. Uh, Muhammad is dead, so we're out of here. And Abu Bakr says, oh, no, you don't. And so the first wars fought by Islam in a military fashion were against Muslims. And okay. they're called the Rida Wars, the wars of apostasy. And so once Abu Bakr killed enough Muslims who wanted to leave, the others said, you know, we're really getting with the program now, we like it, so we'll be Muslims, we're happy again. Okay. Then when Umar came to power, he had a unified Arabian civilization behind him. And so that's when he attacked, and the first attack was Syria, and the conquest was of the city of Damascus. The reason for the importance of this is, is Damascus was the intellectual powerhouse of the Christian world. So the very first thing that happened within 10 years after Muhammad's death was, is that... We're talking about going into Syria, right? Or you right. say, oh, 
You're okay, but right after Muhammad's death, it was focused on fixing the problem with apostasy. Right, and then after that was fixed, we then went into the mode of attacking others. And once this started, within a century, the classical world had fallen. When I say the classical world, the world of Persia, the world of the Arabs, uh, it's, uh, it's, it, it just all happened. Pretty fast, actually, Yeah, at that time. Okay, so we're talking about Syria being the first targeted country of Muslim invasion and the invasion happening because the seer of Muhammad and the Hadith explain that to be a, and demonstrate that to be a perfect person, you have to spread Islam until that it covers the whole world. So when they went into Syria, what was it like? before the invasion, and how did they do that? Did they get a big army together to do it? or It was a classical army. I mean, there was nothing subtle about this once they declared. Now, the first thing that happens is, before the attack is, they always issue you an invitation to Islam. Okay. It, jihad only follows after you have rejected the opportunity to become Muslim. That was sort of the way it was with Abu Bakr. You have denied now that you're a Muslim, so you can be attacked. But uh, if as long as you agree to submit, then you, you will not be attacked. Okay, okay, okay. So, so first you're given the invitation, then after that the attack. This, by the way, is the reason why on 9-11 people call me so many people because when Osama bin Laden, when Osama bin Laden issued his famous tape, VCR tape, remember those? Mm-hmm. And it included yeah. the call to Islam. That's when I went, ooh, my word. He has called America to Islam. That's when I told my friends, I says, we will be attacked. And so when it happened, they called me and says, well, how did you know? I says, well, I read the playbook. Yeah, exactly. So, so, they, so how did they do the invitation? And before the invasion, what was it like in Syria? Syria was a Christian nation. It was a high culture, a high civilization. It had been part of the Roman Empire. Uh, it was, we would have to some degree felt at home there. I mean, people would have been wearing different clothes and stuff. Mm-hmm. But it was a civilization which was sort of antecedent to ours. It was part of what I call classical civilization, which is the Persian, Byzant, Greek, and Latin culture, Roman culture. Right. Okay, so do you have any idea how big the army was that went in to conquer Syria? I do not. All right. I did I, computations on one battle, the so-called Battle of Change, and came up with... I had to generate the figures by extrapolation from some demographic work, but it was probably about 10,000. Okay, okay. But it was enough to do the job. And by the way, it's interesting how quickly... Now, here's the other thing. Islam was pushing on a rotten door. Here's, why, here's one reason the conquest went so quick. Syria, I'm not saying, I'm not saying, uh, Persia and mm-hmm. the Greeks had been going at it for centuries. I mean, if you study classical history, the Persians and the Greeks were always attacking each other. Okay. So, what had happened is, is there had been a couple of battles between the Persians and the Greeks that had been ruinous on resources, war destroys. And then the other thing was, there was a a plague which came through and killed about a third of the population. Now this plague involved mice and rats with fleas. Well, it turns out in the desert you don't have such problems. Right, right. So as a result, the, the Arabs in the peninsula were well protected from the plague. So they were attacking a nation that had been wearied by war, depleted by disease, and so therefore conquest was easier. As a matter of fact, history has always favored, has always smiled on Islam, uh, such idi- uh, idiosyncrasies as that. 
Yeah, that's interesting. So, so the way Syria was before the invasion, I guess, do you know anything about the status of women and things like that? I do not. It was a Christian nation. It had been a Roman nation. Now, the Greeks, to be fair, were not very kind to women. I mean, they were uh, considered them strictly inferior. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they, I'm not, I could not talk about the status of women in, in the classical world as a Christian can't say, nor can I even say about Persia. But if I had more time, I'd love to read about it. So when they invaded Syria, how much did they have to destroy until everybody became either Dimmies or Muslims? To my knowledge, not that much material destruction happened. There was not a lot of siege warfare, although Muhammad did practice siege warfare. Mm-hmm. Matter of fact, Muhammad was very quick to pick up technology with regards to jihad, which is interesting because Islam now no longer picks up technology for war very well at all. You don't think of jet planes being made by the House of Saud, for instance. Right, right. Okay, but Muhammad was pretty advanced that way during his... Yes, he, he, when he ran into the catapult, there's a very famous, the most famous battle at, um, in Medina was called the Battle of the Trench. And yep. there was a Persian who knew about trench warfare, so the Medinans were being attacked by the Meccans, where he used to be and had been attacking them, so they said, we're going to whack you back. And so they dug a trench, and this was very frustrating to the Meccans because they had never seen a trench before. It's recorded very clearly in the Syrah. Mm-hmm. So he, he was quick to pick up better war methods. Okay, okay, interesting. So, I, I may have asked you this, I don't know, did, did you say how long it took to conquer Syria? It happened very quickly, within a year's time. Wow. As a matter of fact, the whole conquest of Umar went really rapidly uh, throughout the classical world. When I say the classical world, this includes Iraq. Iraq, by the way, we need to say this was a Christian nation at the time. Most people think of Iraq as being Muslim, but right. it was Christian before it was that. And Persia was half Christian and half well, Zoroastrian. Half Zoroastrian. Okay, interesting. So what was the sequence of countries after Syria? Well, it expanded in many directions. It went east into uh, Persia, and then from that they went into Afghanistan and Pakistan. Uh, mm-hmm. It also invaded uh, what we call Turkey, Asia Minor, which was the Byzantine Empire, and they spread across North Africa really fast. The, the destruction of North Africa's civilization occurred, occurred so fast that a lot of the architecture was left behind and it was cleaned out. The citizens were so destroyed that they never used the old classical buildings as a resource for mining or quarry. A lot of the Roman buildings, for instance, were used as once the Roman Empire lost the ability to hold a central government the citizens began to use the old Roman buildings for quarry, for marble. Because they were made out of stone, you mean? They were made out of stone, and so therefore it was easier to tear down old buildings and reuse them if you wanted to build another one. But in North Africa, the conquest happened so fast and was so thorough that there weren't enough citizens around to tear down some of the buildings. So as a consequence, in North Africa, we have more classical buildings left behind than in, let's say, Italy. So Pakistan was the... Uh, for the moment, the barrier, the extent that they went to on the east, right? That was the farthest east country that they conquered? Well, in the, in the first wave, they only went to as far as Pakistan. Now, they would later come back and keep hacking away at it till even more of India fell. But then India recovered to some degree. 
So okay, you know, now, Pakistan in, used to India be... India is a combined country now, right? I've been there a couple of times, and they have Muslims and Hindus and a lot of other religions, too. They do indeed. One of the natures of polytheism is, is they're very tolerant. Because if, you, if you're a polytheist, then you admit you live in a world in which there are many deities, gods. Mm, okay, right. And, so as a, and this is what happened to Muhammad when he came in Mecca and said, I have another religion. And the Meccans said, fine. It didn't create any ripple of the waters at all. It is mm. said that there were 360 religions practiced in, in Mecca. And so uh, uh, when, he bring in with, when he came with 361, they just said, fine, put him over here, not a problem. Right. And then, so India was somewhat of the same way. They were very tolerant with regards to, but they discovered that with Islam, even in India today, there is a, there is a lot of problems with jihad and constant pressure. What we have now is, is that the Shariaization, that is becoming a Sharia nation, occurs mm -hmm. more through the political process than through the war process. That is, is that true in any of these early countries that they invaded, that it happened? No. There, once the Sharia was put in place, it was put in place with the force of arms, and there was no pushback at all. What's okay. happening today is that we have, like, Modi as the prime minister of India, and Modi does not like Islam. And so, as a result, some things are changing, including uh, Indian textbooks. Oh, interesting. Okay. So, how, how are the textbooks changing? What, what is it? They well, they're more pro-Hindu than they were. Oh, okay. This is a civilizational war that we're involved in. We have this, for instance, in Tennessee. The Tennessee textbooks called Human Geography, which was not a subject that was taught when I was in school. But anyway, it involves history. And in Tennessee, a little Tennessean will come out of the seventh grade knowing that Islam was one of the world's greatest civilizations. Its golden mm -hmm. age was the high point of human civilization. That Islam was the first to give women their rights. And that Islam protected Jews and, and uh, Christians. Right. And this is a textbook has been modified to do this. So this textbook is now part of an effort of jihad, because it's jihad of the pen and speech, that is, it's the ideas. So the Muslim Brotherhood is the one who implemented a new form of jihad, and the reason they did this was the Ottoman Empire, which had existed for centuries, finally became so weak that it couldn't really field an army anymore. And so finally, the government collapsed. Then what happened was, soon in the same decade that it collapsed, which I believe was 1924, speaking without notes, okay. they, uh, the Muslim Brotherhood came up with another idea because they went through and studied the Hadith and saw that there were other methods of attacking and those methods were, were uh, civilizational in nature. That is, by using the jihad of persuasion. And jihad, by the way, means effort. It does not mean war. Okay, okay. It includes it war, many forms. Right. but it just means effort. And so what we see, the, what we see in America today and in Europe is the method of the Muslim Brotherhood, which is they first come to your country and they say, oh, we, we've been victimized in our previous country. We're so happy to be in your country with you now. We're the religion of peace. We're so happy to be here. And no, we don't want anything other than welfare. Mm -hmm. And then once, once they become strong enough and become communities, they self-ghettoize. And I don't, I don't mean that term to be offensive, but they live in enclaves. And then pretty soon the, house, the representative in the urban government is now Muslim. And then starts pressure with the school systems. We want halal food. We want the textbooks to read what we say. We want prayer rooms in the school, and we want time off from prayer. And we don't want any tests given during Ramadan because we're weak when we're, then, when we're doing this, and so we don't want to be the bigotry of having to take a test when we're fasting. 
So yeah. all this process of Islamization, becoming isn't Islamic. Ram isn't Ramadan where you just change your hours of eating to nighttime? Yes. And what happens is, if in a, in a country that's purely Islamic, productivity goes down a lot because the way to cheat the system because all you do is you fast during the day. So if you can reverse your days and stay up at night and eat all night and then sleep yeah. during the day, yeah. then your fasting process is pretty easy. Well, yeah, because you're not fasting any more than you would any other day, right? Yeah. The, I, so fasting inside of Islam during Ramadan is peculiar. You fast during the day and then you gorge at night. Right. Uh, it's exactly. been noted more than once that many Muslims gain weight during Ramadan. Yeah, exactly. Um, the other thing that I had a question on that you said is that, and I've heard this said many times also in different sources, is that Islam was the first religion to give women their rights. Is that, is that true because it defines what their rights are? It does so in a very explicit way. Now, what it gives women the rights to be is, is the next question. Okay, so it gives women their rights, and what are those rights? Well, they include being beaten, include being part of a harem, include being raped, because a woman... In Islam, there's never supposed to refuse the demand for sex. There's a hadith which says the most important thing that a woman brings to the marriage is her vagina. Mm -hmm. Right, I've heard that too. So, okay, that's what part of their life. women rights. walking around unaccompanied outside? I mean, They're are, not there, supposed to. are there rules about how to treat them? Well, in America, they do. I've seen that. Yes. Well, they're, they're not, the Sharia is not fully in place in America yet either. Now, in Saudi Arabia, they don't do so much of that, do they? Uh, no, but I guess that's because of what happened when they did. Yes. Guessing. But you said it, it you know, rape is, is okay under this religion, but you only mentioned within marriage. Yes. Well, you can also rape, you can also rape Kafir women. Because okay, well, that's kind of what I was getting at. Right. right. But what I call rape, I mean, it's forced sex during the marriage to a woman you're married to. There's yeah. one hadith which really stuck in my brain is, if a woman is asked for sex while she's putting bread into the oven, she's to stop the baking and give him sex. Right, right, exactly. And that's, by the way, one of the things I love about the uh, hadith. They have a funky, real-life, daily-life quality to them. I love that. Yeah, you can always get more bread. So, okay, I guess what, what I'm getting to then is that if now, today, um, we don't really have as much of the same kind of jihad where an army of 10,000 men marches in. Well, I mean, it, it's not entirely different from that because uh, 10 million of those guys are brought in intentionally under UN policies into Western Europe. And there's, they've been something like 80% military-age men, according to the demographic there. And they didn't come as one army marching in formation, but they're much bigger than the armies that Muhammad originally used. Point well made, Richard. Point well made. And it, the reason that Islam is winning is not that Islam is so strong, but we are so weak, so, un, so unorganized and so hampered by our own self-induced thing where we've, we've reached a thing where all we care, all we want to do is to be nice and we don't want anybody, any victim to ever be disturbed, any minority to ever be disturbed. So we walk well, on eggshells That's the policy now. set by our rulers, yeah. Well, but our rulers here include not only the demo. I follow. I find that politics follows culture, and that the culture was first started implementing these strange rules about certain classes of people cannot be disturbed. 
Mm-hmm. And so, therefore, if versus Muslims cannot, you, you're not supposed to. I'm called a racist, hater, bigot, Islamophobe because I say things that are true about Islam, but they are offensive to Islam because they don't like them. Well, that means that I'm a I'm a bad person. Now, when and so people try to the it's been tried to shame me, but unfortunately, this is the kind of thing where I'm proud of what I do and I talk about it all you want. Yeah, and I mean we have a policy of interviewing bad people too, so it's all right on the station. <laughs> but um, I'm the but best I, bad. yeah, I guess um, what I was trying to characterize current jihad, and it sounds like a combination of military jihad and cultural jihad, because the military part is still happening in these acts of terrorism and mass rape in Scandinavia and Europe and places like that. Those are part of jihad too, right? I've said it before and I'll say it again. Muhammad was the greatest genius of war that humanity has ever produced. Alexander the Great, no one died for him today. Caesar, no one died for him today. Napoleon, no one died for him today. But someone died today because of Muhammad. Muhammad created a form of war that was, went beyond bullets and bombs, kinetic warfare. He greatly transcended that. He made war an act of God and a blessing for all Muslims to participate in. Mm-hmm. So Muhammad was the greatest genius of war ever practicing. Now, what's interesting today is I spoke with a retired Navy SEAL who had fought in the Middle East, and I said to him, did you ever study the doctrine of Islam? He says, no, not a word. Mm-hmm. So what we're fighting here is, is we choose to fight kinetic war with bullets and bombs and blood, but Muslims choose to fight a war that includes everything about headscarves, food, right. schools, textbooks. And so they are... They're geniuses, absolute geniuses, and we are complete ignorant fools. Mm-hmm. You can't bang on the head of a military man hard enough to convince him that he should know something about Islam. Right. We have we have four-star generals retired who are advising Trump. They don't know any more about Islam than they know about high-energy particle physics. Right. Well, yeah, I noticed too that um, Muhammad left the or. Muhammad's successors, really, because Muhammad didn't write any scriptures, right? They were written a couple hundred years after he died. Correct. And in those scriptures, uh, accurate or, or inaccurate, whatever they are, they're official now. And they contain the motivation for individuals to carry on jihad in a not organized fashion. Which Correct. is really much more effective because they, people don't need to be ordered. They already know what to do. The gentleman who, uh, and I keep calling him a gentleman, I'm trying to be polite, who uh, committed the act of jihad yesterday, mm-hmm. did not need to be part of any group, because what he did was he followed the, the Islamic State has several magazines, books on the web, and they go into detail about how to commit truck jihad, what kind of vehicle to rent, what kind of yeah. vehicle not to rent. Uh, there are things here. There are very practical details. This is details. an important point. I, I bet you almost nobody knows about this. I didn't know about it. Well, it, it's true. I mean, I've seen these. They discuss the advantages. For instance, they talk about, I bet you've never thought about this, Richard, but would you rather be run down by a truck or a sports car? Well, you want to be run down by a sports car because it's low to the ground, has a lot of plastic in it, and that if you're lucky, you'll be thrown up on the hood and over the car. Yeah. But with exactly. a truck, you're going to be pushed down and ground under the wheels and under the transmission and stuff as it goes over you. So, And they go into these details. Now, the detail that they didn't follow was is that uh, Islamic State recommends you go to U-Haul to get the truck, but he okay. went to Home Depot instead. Oh, shoot. Does he still get into paradise or not? 
Uh, well, he did not die in the act, so he is not he, fully... He died right after the act, though, because I think the police killed him, didn't they? No, 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 no. He was shot and uh, was taken to a hospital. I see. Okay, okay. So, no paradise yet. That means that Allah was not willing to accept his sacrifice, and this is probably to some degree a disappointment to him. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. Um Okay. But the point uh, is, Islamic, he did not have to be a member of Islamic State in terms of being a card carrier. All he had to do was to be enchanted by the ideas of Islamic State and then know in his core that this is what Allah wants. Because the Quran that this gentleman used is exactly the same Quran that every Muslim uses, including the nicest Muslim you've ever met. Right. It's just that the nicest Muslim you've ever met does not choose to practice all of the Quran and this gentleman chose, this jihadist chose to practice all of the Quran, not just part of it. And some people think that ISIS, as, as you just mentioned, uh, who, by the way, has, you know, claimed responsibility for a lot of this kind of acts recently, including the one in Las Vegas and things which we're learning a lot of interesting things about. Um, ISIS, people think of a, as a radical terrorist group that's just kind of like a fringe element that's not real Islam. Well... According, how are we to judge what Islam is? Well, the answer is, is it found in the Quran and the Sunnah of Muhammad? That's what Islam is. And so when we go to the Quran and the Sunnah of Muhammad, we discover that Muhammad, they're doing exactly what Muhammad did. One of these magazines, for instance, which I had referenced earlier, that appeared on the web, they went into a great deal of justification for sex slaves. And they said, look, don't yell at us because we have sex slaves. Muhammad had sex slaves. Mm -hmm. Here's the Hadith and here's the Quran. And I read their paper. I always read their theological and doctrinal writings with great interest because they are so good. People say, now there's a contradiction here. People say Islamic State, that's not the real Islam. And yet the man who heads it, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, mm -hmm. has a PhD in Islamic studies from Al-Azhar University. Al-Azhar University is the top university in Islam. So here's a man with a doctorate and yet the media says, oh, he doesn't know anything about Islam. Now, which is it? Does he have a Ph.D. In his, from Al-Azhar University in Islam, or does he not? And besides that, you can grade his paper, which is what I do. The, the one they did on sex slaves I read with interest, mm -hmm. and I actually learned something new. There was one companion of Muhammad who did not have sex slaves. But, I mean, they go through and they're like, this is the doctrine. We're only doing what the doctrine says to do. So, therefore, I grade their paper and I go, Islamic State is purely Islamic. They just simply practice all of the Quran and all of the Hadith, whereas the average Muslim that you run into does not practice all of the Quran and all of the Hadith. They're like 50 percenter Muslim, whereas right. Islamic State is 100 percenter. Yeah, so they're not a radical fringe group at all. They're not radical. They're normative. Right, right. And they probably treat each other very nicely. Oh, absolutely. Community. Now, you've got to be the right flavor of Islam. If you're Islamic State, you despise the Shia, and they're killed on sight many times. Okay. But but, no, 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 no. A Muslim is to be a brother to another Muslim. This is written in the, in the Hadith. Now, there are 12 verses in the Quran which say a Muslim is never the true friend of a kafir, the non-Muslim. But for each other, and this is one of the reasons that Islam is so popular. We live in a world which is, where people are isolated from each other. And if you want to have all the friends you can have, want, become a Muslim. Because you'll have all the friends you can possibly need. Right. And they're right. really your friend. I mean, they're, they'll help you. If yeah. you need money, they'll loan you money or give you money. They're very generous to each other. Mm -hmm. Okay. So they're just following the teachings of, of That's the all they're doing. 
they're not whack jobs. They're not crazy, nor are they. The one, there's several things that drive me crazy when they say, oh, they're a terrorist. No, he's a jihadist. He's not a terrorist. Mm-hmm. And he's not a radical. He is a jihadist. He is practicing 100% of Islam. Okay, so now what about taking the example of, you know, I want to look at this before we get into the more subtle aspects. There's been a huge wave in Scandinavia of invasion and rape, uh, supported by the government just like in Europe and here. But the actual participants have just, it's become the rape capital of the world, Sweden in particular. And it's it's pretty much illegal to mention or talk about it. That's because the bad gov- part. The government's supporting it 100%. But I find it interesting that that, from what you're saying, would be right in line with good practice according to the scriptures, right? Yes. I mean, <laughs> we want to judge other people on the basis of what we think is the truth. And that's all right if, as long as you explicitly state what, you th- what your basis is. But mm-hmm. to say somebody else is, is not doing well because they don't practice the religion the way you think they should, if you want to know whether a Jew is a good Jew or not, you go to the Torah, or at right. least for the forms of Orthodox Jews. I don't know about liberal. Yeah. So we need a, when we say something is good, bad, or indifferent, if you're at an Olympic event and you're doing a dive and they, your dives are judged by judges, they have rules which they apply to your dive. I may look at it, a guy who does an Olympic dive, and go, oh, that looks really nice. But a professional would go, oh, no, 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 he didn't do this, he didn't do this, he didn't do that. Right. So they, when they score them, they're using a known standard. And if we're going to score Islam, we need to have a standard. And the only standard is the Sunnah of Muhammad and the Quran. That is all the standard there is. Whether you either like it or don't like it is not important. Yeah, it's whether it, it matches the uh, protocol that's prescribed or not. Mm-hmm. So, so how do these mass rapes in Scandinavia fit into the scriptures? Well, because they are the one who, who you possess with your right hand. It is possible to rape women who are under your control if they're Kafir women. And the phrase in the Quran is, those whom you have captured with your right hand, the sword hand. Okay, okay. So that's for that. Now then, that's in the Quran. And you're allowed to have any, as many sex slaves as you want. I call them slaves because they're under your control and you can rape them when you wish. Right. Then the Hadith goes into much greater detail about this. There's even details in which uh, they captured a bunch of women and they didn't want them to get pregnant because they were going to sell them for sex slaves and a pregnant woman brings less money than an unpregnant woman. So they practice what is called coitus interruptus. And they went to Muhammad with this, and he says, you do that? Oh, don't do that. A baby will be born if Allah wants it and not if he doesn't. He didn't condemn them raping the women. He just says, you don't need to practice coitus interruptus. Right, right, right. Interesting. Okay, so they're actually, what? it's not just that they're allowed to have sex slaves. I think it's part of taking over a country as well, isn't it? Well, think what it does. I shall win, I shall cast terror into the hearts of the unbeliever. There are, I've talked with women in such countries, and they're terrified. They, whereas they used to might go out by themselves at night, they no longer do it. Right, right. And, uh, and so this is a degradation of your society. The problem is not the rape of Swedish women. The problem is the Swedes won't talk about it. That's well, they're, the problem. T- they're starting to be threatened with arrest if they do. 
I mean, the government is be, is behind it, just like it is in Europe and, and here. And in fact, in Denmark, uh, they got to the point where the major police chief in one of the main cities has said, we need terrorists in the schools to, um, I guess, cultural diversity is for, was what I remember him talking about. But, well, there's even been a thing that, oh, the reason they rape our women is we haven't told them we don't do that. What? I mean, yeah. how ignorant can you finally get? Yeah, I have a feeling it's not ignorance except on the part of the, the population that believes it. But well, I think the ignorance is primarily at the top. Richard, when it comes to the subject of Islam, I noticed that this in the military, a four-star yeah. general doesn't know anything about Islam, but a gunny sergeant from Afghanistan does. Mm-hmm. The higher you go, the less they know. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, so that And that's going on all over Europe right now. There's also a lot of carjackings, uh, and you know that that's connected too because many of them are screaming the same words when they do it. So with the carjackings, this is different than rape. I would assume from what you're saying that that fits in because you're taking over a country for Islam, right? I mean, that's Yes, and you're also getting, you're allowed to take the booty that you capture. That is in the process, what we would call crime, they would call an act of jihad, an act of elevation in the eyes of, of Allah. Because a Muslim is allowed to take the goods that he captures from the kafir and to have sex with the women that he captures. Right. So this idea of civilizational jihad, we now have, this is again ingenious. You don't need to be in the military, so you can't know who is going to be in war. If a man has a uniform on, you know where he stands. But in this war, they don't need to wear a uniform, and so therefore they can always pass themselves off as a nice guy. Yeah, so if it's a truck attack, you have no idea until the truck goes onto the sidewalk. Exactly. Exactly. Ingenious. You don't even know to be afraid. It's the ultimate guerrilla war, I guess. It is the ultimate guerrilla war, and one that we could win if we would only talk about it. We're, We're committing cultural suicide because we don't want to talk. And this is the reason I get into trouble, is that I was raised by a woman who was very uh, clear about what she believed and told everybody whether they wanted to hear it or not, and I, she taught that to me, and so I tell people what I like, whether they want to hear it or not. But most people aren't built like that, Richard. Most people well, want I, to be liked by everybody. I Yeah, I totally agree, and I understand it. Um, it feels better for people to like you. <laughs> but It in, does. In Europe, you know, the people that are talking, and there are some, they're being cut off of social media, yes. not by the general population, but by the rulers. And they're being threatened with arrest now for posting anything that's real about this subject. I noticed in Britain that the police no longer arrest uh, petty theft and shoplifting, but they've increased the police force devoted to looking for hate speech on the web, and their arrests are up 53%. Yes, exactly. I mean, even Lost Arts Radio had a video... Uh, censored by YouTube because it was a, a recording of a, a classroom with little kids being taught by uh, a woman in a school. And they were being drilled on what the punishment for different offenses was. And they were uh, acting, er, as, answering correctly. And it was just a normal day at school. And we got told that if we showed anything like that again, we could be kicked off YouTube forever. I mean, what do you, I mean, See, that's the problem, Richard. Not that the event happened, but that you're not allowed to talk about it. No, absolutely. This is becoming like 1984. Big Brother knows best. Do not oppose Big Brother. Yeah. Big Brother loves you, but you better submit. 
Yeah, and th- this is you know what discourages people from doing what you just said of talking about it, because in the Western world it's becoming um, a felony to do that. I never believed that I would ever live in a nation in the West who would throw you off something because you told the truth. When truth is no longer a, va- a valid ex- standard for speech, we live in a world that is 1984, when the Ministry of Truth will tell us what the truth is today. Yeah. In fact, that if Orwell were still around, he could write the sequel called 2017. He really could. It's, uh, it breaks my heart. breaks my heart. Yeah, I have better better faith in humanity than our rulers do. You see, I believe that people will do the right thing if they're given a chance. Part of being given a chance means to talk about it amongst ourselves. That's the whole um, premise of a free society. Because if you thought people weren't capable of that, they couldn't be free. It would be bad. You know, but because if they're given freedom, things eventually work out, then uh, you get to have an idea like the Republic was supposed to set up to be where anybody could live however they wanted and believe what they want as long as they let other people do the same thing. Exactly. But now then, I'm being told that free speech is hate speech. Yeah. And that no speech is allowed to upset a protected minority. Yes. There's minorities that are not protected. But there are those who, there are protected minorities, and Muslims are part of that protected minority. As a matter of fact, I think being a Muslim is the most protected minority in the world today. All right, so if Muslims are the most protected minority in the world, um, I have an idea why that would be, and it's certainly nothing against Muslims, in my opinion, but why do you think that has occurred? Why, why is that situation happening right now? Well, we first, I think, have to ask the question is, why are there politically protected minorities at all? Yeah, that's a good point, because we're all supposed to be automatically protected under constitutional principles, right, no matter who we are. right. And I thought we were to stand equal as citizens in front of the law, but it turns out it doesn't really work that way, does it? There are, and you can tell who's protected or not. Ask yourself this simple question. If I were a comedian, could I insult them and make a funny joke? And if the answer is no, then they're protected. Yeah, that's a really amazing concept. And I think it's come up so gradually that now, especially with younger people who have never experienced anything else, it's considered normal. Right. And there are, I read where some comedians were talking amongst each other, and they won't even do college co- comedy tours anymore. Because um, nothing is funny. Yeah, yeah, Every, exactly. Everyone's a victim. You're guaranteed in the audience to have victims, and so they're going to be insulted, they're going to be offended, they're going to... So anyway, but humor is a wonderful thing. And by the way, as a sidebar, Islam has very little sense of humor. I one time wrote a paper on the humor of Muhammad, entitled it ain't funny Muhammad because we have events like this Uh, the head of his enemies was thrown at his feet and he laughed so hard you could see his back teeth well that's funny to him but not funny to me where where did this come from that you're quoting him from the Syrah okay okay so So this was in the middle of some kind of invasion I was just have to understand that Muhammad was involved in 95 acts of jihad in the last nine years of his life and this was just one of the 95 Okay, okay, okay. And we're not talking about he was involved in, in jihad of, like, trying to take over the votes in a school system or something. This is blood jihad. Yeah, yeah, okay. And so, that was the main kind at that time, I guess, right? right? And so we know that Islam cannot be made fun of because, remember the Muhammad cartoons? People died. I was just going to bring that up, yeah. 
Yeah. I actually have one of those. I have one of those cartoons signed by Garrett Wilders and one of the artists on my wall. It's wow. a proud possession. Wow. Yeah, you've gotten a government seal of approval. I think you said that you were banned as a, a hate person by certain organizations. Which ones were those? Southern Poverty Law Center, which used oh, to be yeah. the, the hate group detector for uh, for uh, both the Department of Defense and Department of Justice, but now they've both dropped them. Because well, officially, they, but they give them all the funding still. That may be. And, of course, when you're only worth a third of a billion dollars, you need some funding. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and they're, they're really stressed about which offshore accounts to use and things like right. that. Right. <laughs> in a hard time. So... Um, but that's interesting. So, um, what can we learn by the fact that the group is completely protected? I, I think, you know, I want to see what you think about this, but one of the things that I've come to, because I've done, this has gone together with a lot of other research that I've, I've done into the economic and political power structure that's been running our world in America even for a long time, most of the world for much longer than America. And what I'm finding is that there are, elements controlling these major governments that, um, I hate to sound extremist here, but they're not friendly to the populations. They're not even friendly to their native populations necessarily. That's what I mean. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the studies in University of Hawaii during the 20th century, there were over 262 million people murdered by their own governments, not counting wars. Actually, I believe the most uh, dangerous terrorist is your own government by and large i think that's absolutely true so it's not really a mystery that they would be protecting any group willing to do the kind of violence that tears society apart so yeah i think it makes total sense and you can see an amazing coordination that protection is certainly not just in america that's oh, no. in that's even more so in Europe at this point. Much more so. As a matter of fact, they look, they look at us sort of like cowboys. It turns out when I was in Europe, the United States Constitution's freedom of speech amendment is known throughout the world. Mm -hmm. yeah. Because it's such an outrageous proposition. Yeah, it's really like, irritating to rulers who are trying to keep everything in order, right? <laughs> right. But you know, I always figure <laughs> that citizens should be a little irritation to their leaders because... <laughs> They need it. Yeah, I mean, the, the idea of America was supposed to be that you had leaders that kind of were part of the people they were leading. But uh, I guess yes. that was short-lived. <laughs> right. So it needs to be turned around. And, and I think um, the reason that, that the violent elements of the Muslim religion, like ISIS, were willing to follow it verbatim from the scriptures not from somebody's interpretation. They are, you know, they have been really supported by governments up until right this moment. And this is one of the reasons that they have to portray the current president as being a demon because he's not going along with that. Right. Um, kind of interesting. I want to look at another aspect too because I know the rest of our time is going to go by in a flash here. And I want to you know, step even further outside the box of political correctness here and build up to it by looking at the earlier part of Muhammad's teachings when you said, you know, when you said the answer was yes, that Islam taught beauty and peace and world harmony and killing all the Kafirs, both. 
and they were somewhat separated uh, in those two teachings by time periods. So, in the earlier time period was the more, could I go so far as to say more peaceful teaching of Islam well, during certainly the earlier part of the Meccan period, right? In the Meccan period, Muhammad was divisive because what he did was he came into a polytheistic society and said, not only that I have a religion, but my religion says all your religions are bad and wrong. Well, in a polytheistic society, that is with many gods, everybody has their own God and your God doesn't trample on another man's God. Yeah, yeah. So, but when and, Muhammad came in, he introduced his, his religion and his religion trampled on everyone's gods and caused dissension. So there were arguments. There was even one argument that drew blood. One of his followers picked up the jawbone of a camel and hit another man who was arguing with him. But okay. that was the limit. Was the was a camel's jaws worth of blood? Right. No one died in the preparation so, of Mecca. So Muhammad was saying, not only are your religions theoretically wrong, you and all your ancestors are going to hell. Yes. Something like that. Yes. Yeah. And it's hard for us to in. We live in a society in which, after you're married, you may well marry, well, for instance, my two kids married, mm -hmm. and moved to Chicago and Seattle, and then we keep in touch by telephone, but we don't have that close a relationship, and so, therefore, <clears throat> Richard, I lost my train of thought. Oh, that's okay. We're It'll come back to you, because I was thinking about the earlier peaceful teaching of Muhammad in Mecca, ah. at least in the first part of it, and I was... Remember the quote that I made during the, um, or referred to during the earlier part of this discussion, when I said that um, the commentator on television had said, gee, we usually hear Allahu Akbar in the most beautiful context. Yes. And so, um, I want to look at that and not just say, well, it's not only that. Let's look at that beautiful context. What's the most beautiful context teaching that Muhammad was at one point giving? Well, the, the Allahu Akbar is, of course, included in their prayers many times. Okay. And it's, and it's a note of praise. Islam is dualistic. So not only does Allahu Akbar occur peaceful prayer, Allahu Akbar also occurs as the cry of jihad. And this very thing shows us the double meaning of everything in Islam. Allahu Akbar can be used for peaceful purposes and beautiful circumstances, and it can be used after you slit a kafir's throat. Right. And they're both equally used as Allahu Akbar and both correctly used. Okay. So, uh, it's everything in Islam is dualistic. Just when you think you have it fixed, it's like, well, no, the opposite of that is also true. Most well, so, so, if you go back to the very earliest time when he had just had the revelation from the angel and he was starting to tell the people in his town in uh, Mecca uh, what it was and why they should consider joining it, was there a time when he wasn't causing dissension, or is that not true? Now you've asked a very interesting question. Yes, we are. And by the way, one of the reasons that the Sarah, the life of Muhammad, has truth in it is that some of the things that he that tells about Muhammad are not, I, let's put it this way, I hope my children tell better stories about me after I'm dead. But okay, right. there was a time when he was known as a peacemaker in his community. Okay. There's a famous example. Was that before, sorry, but was that before or after his revelation by the angel? Ah, this was before revelation. Okay. Gotcha. Before revelation, he was known as a peacemaker. There's a very famous thing where they rebuilt the Kaaba, the cubicle-shaped stone building that everyone uh, walks around while they pray. Yeah. And uh, 
there was the black stone which was going to the corner. There was an argument in the neighborhood about, well, who should put the black stone in place because it's sort of like the keystone of the whole thing, spiritually speaking. Mm-hmm. And so there was a big argument. And so Muhammad came along and they said, let's let Muhammad settle the argument. And Muhammad says, yes. So he took a blanket. They put the black stone in the blanket and everyone who wanted to put the black stone in the corner place grabbed a hem of the blanket and put it into place. Then they pulled the blanket out. Oh, so this, this is sort of a, I like the idea because it's a rather beautiful story. Everybody, uh, everybody, people may, if they've studied the Old Testament, be reminded of King Solomon's judgment on what to, which mother belonged to the baby. Yes, yes, exactly. So this is a similar story. I thought, I thought it was a brilliant use. Everyone got their, what they wanted, which was to put the stone in place. Nobody was offended. It was a brilliant thing. Right. Those moments, and as a matter of fact, the Meccans make note of this, that he used to be a a person who brought peace to their community and now then he brings nothing but strife because a Muslim is not only right but everyone else is wrong and that's the irritating part of it yeah. so they drove him out because they said he creates dissension and argument okay so I guess where I'm going with this is that um, the purpose of you know w- why any of us spend any time to be public figures and, and that sort of thing and talk on the radio is we want a certain result. We want things to work out more harmoniously, peacefully, successfully, prosperously, happily in the world rather than some of the ways that they're going right now. I think it comes down to a really simple desire for everybody to be okay instead of tearing each other to pieces. And it seems like if you're looking at that idea and that ideal, in which is not just ours or any particular religion, it should be Pretty much any sane human being should be interested in that naturally. And um, the example that you chose for Muhammad is perfectly in harmony with that because he was teaching everybody, look, you don't really have to fight because there's always a way to have a better outcome through cooperation and mutual respect. And that had a good result in the village. So my question is, and sorry for the long build-up, but I think this is important. If if we recognize intrinsically and automatically that that was a beautiful impulse on the part of Muhammad, and then he became a recognized spiritual leader, and starts saying, well, you have to kill each other. Why is it that we can't recognize there's something wrong with that picture? Richard, you now, make, you now touched in a, the sore spot in my soul which is it's so obvious what is going on and yet I have people who refuse to listen people do not want to hear they the sound may vibrate their ear but the brain does not hear it's just the ear that hears because all of this is clearly laid out it's that he was a two-part person and yet people still want to say oh no no have you ever seen this in the media the real Islam is and then they want to do some version of the religion of peace. Yeah, 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 exactly. And um, it seems Look, to me... We, we would all know, like for this problem to go away. Yeah, or be resolved. I mean, we're happy to resolve it. But the thing is, we're not telling anybody what religion to have or to change nope. your belief system. We're saying, look, even if you don't have a belief system, it's self-evident, just like the founders of the American Republic said, these things are self-evident. And one of them is that people are designed 
to do best if they appreciate, love, and support each other and um, help each other out with life because it's very brief and difficult, and that makes it a lot better. I concur with you 100%. Right. So, um, I guess what I'm encouraging people to do, which is probably only going to appeal to maybe one out of a million people, if that, is, you know, we have a direct connection to something that even if it were never described in words, is something beyond the mortal experience, but we, we're connected to it, we can feel it, and we know something about it if we're really quiet and just get in touch with what we automatically know. And if, we have, if we're in touch with that, right to our source, and then some supposedly great leader, I don't care if it's Muhammad or Buddha or Jesus or God, comes up and said, well, we're changing all that, now you have to kill each other because everybody but you is wrong, and the other people are subhuman. I'm encouraging people to say, excuse me, God, sir, um, <laughs> very good, you know, philosophy that you got there, but there's something more true that you need to get in touch with. And I know that's blasphemy, but I don't see any other solution other than to wake up to it. I don't either. I don't either. By the way, let's go back to something you brought up. We said that Muhammad was a good compromiser before he became the prophet or messenger of Allah. Yeah, it was inspiring. Well, there's another story which inspired him to change it, that in a total way. And that was, people kept saying he was creating dissension in Mecca. And so, finally, he decided that there would be a way maybe he could fit together a law and what other people believed. Mm -hmm. There was one of the folk religions, polytheistic religions, that had saw cranes as being messengers to God. Okay. And so, this is the source of the... Uh, of the satanic verses, because what happened was Muhammad came out with the revelation that these high-flying cranes with had the representative of three gods, and I forget their names, could be viewed as intercessionaries with Allah. So what he was trying to do, he was trying to go back to the polytheistic model of we got a, we got God overall, but we have lesser gods. Okay. Well, the Meccans were like, whoa, this is wonderful. They went down to the Kaaba and prayed with him, and, and there was a lot of chatter in Mecca, they're like, wow, we finally resolved all this, it's all good now, we can all live together in harmony. Mm -hmm. And the next day comes another revelation, which was that Satan had placed this revelation in Muhammad's mouth, and that therefore it was wrong. And that he so had you got this. Muhammad correcting his own revelation is what you're saying, right? Well, I'm, I'm buying into the way, I'm telling you the story as though it's the story believed as he told it. That is, it was Allah who sent him the new revelation and said, ah, no, no, Satan gave you that verse. I don't have any intermediaries. That's I see. Funny. Okay. And so that brief period of compromise was the yeah. last time Muhammad ever compromised with a kafir. After and that, that, and that was after the revelation too, right? Yes. Okay. So that's the source of the satanic verses. Right. And so, after that, Muhammad oh, never compromised at all. If you, gave, if you were negotiating with him and gave him 99% of what he wanted, deal was off. So, you're okay. saying the sa what's called the satanic verses mm -hmm. is actually full of the compromise, harmony-oriented thing yes. that Muhammad started to say. Yes. He was, trying to, he was trying to compromise, and Allah tells him, no, there is no compromise. There is no God but Allah. Got Let it. me repeat that. There is no God but Allah, and he doesn't have any messengers. Right. As a matter of fact, it's considered that the greatest sin in Islam is shirk, S-H-I-R-K, mm -hmm. and that means associating others with Allah. 
So this is okay. what. So when he so, tried to so Allah's main concern is really to make sure everybody's constantly saying he's the greatest being, and he's the only one. Allah loves praise. Right. Which, by the way, is sort of an odd thing if you think about a creator God who creates the moon, the stars, and everything else. Is that he also creates me, and that it's just a it's there's there's some things about the concept of Allah which I find a little peculiar. Well, he seems a little bit psychologically in- insecure, because <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry, I'm trying to be totally politically correct here, but it, it sounds like he wants everybody to constantly tell him how great he is, in which case he says he loves them, but if anybody starts saying that, no, he's not the right God, he'll just have to kill them for their own good. Right, and I love that part, for their own good. Well, everything's for your own good, yeah. <laughs> So, okay, I'm, I mean, I'm not a professional psycholo- psychologist or psychiatrist, I'm just trying to understand what's behind that, and everybody's got this intrinsic knowing if they stop the mental programs for half a second and realizes that there's some kind of unlimited, brilliant love that's the root of everything, and yet the psychology, it's almost like humans are trying to create a God in the worst of their own image. <laughs> I don't know. I want your opinion because you're more of an expert than me. I'm going to tell you that I view all religion as a response to three questions. Who am I? Why am I here? And where am I going? That's, now, that's good. just my own particular phrasing of it. And so we all have these questions. And I upset atheists when I say that their response is a religious response to the questions, who am I, why am I here, and where am I going? They always get upset about that. No, I don't have a God at all. I'm not saying you had a God. I'm saying that is your response to the three primary religious questions. Okay, okay, that's interesting. I mean, that's just my way of looking at religion. Well, so what have atheists told you in response to that? Whenever I include them in the list of religions, it's always guaranteed to get a bunch of furious emails. Right, right. Yeah, it's interesting how it's so easy to convert people to anything that requires they hate somebody else. And it's really tricky to get them into the idea that you actually don't have to hate anybody. Well, I agree. And as a matter of fact, uh, even though I'm called an anti, the Southern Poverty Law Center files me under the category of anti-Muslim. And I strongly object to that. I'm anti-Islam, but not, I'm not anti-Muslim. Muslims are people. Right. And most Muslims, by the way, have very little to do with anything about the doctrine other than their daily behavior. Islam is orthopraxic. That is, they don't really care what you believe as long as you function in the community as a Muslim and go to the mosque and pray on Friday mm-hmm. in particular. Right. So, it's all a matter of doing. The, Islam's focus is on the externals, not on the internals. Um, yeah, so you actually have a lot of leeway is what you're saying. Maybe not in theory, but in everyday life practice. See, if, you, if, you, if you're exterior, that is, if you don't, say, criticize Islam, or if you just give lip service, that is enough. That does not create any problems okay. within Islam. Right. You're not so much interested in how, what you, how you are on the inside and how you feel as they are in how you do, how you live, and how you practice that can be seen with the eye. Okay, but now the people at the upper echelons of the organizational parts of Islam, they have specific roles and duties and objectives, right, that they're supposed to be working for. 
Yes, of course. If you're an imam, you want to convert people. You want to, but your primary function as an imam is not to convert people. Your primary function as an imam is to answer questions. So, who's in charge of things like you know? We're, there's so much I want to go over, and our time is so limited. But um, we looked at the kind of jihad that was used in the early days, right after Muhammad's physical death, and to take over places like you know Turkey that took so long, and eventually Pakistan and. Uh, Iran and and those places and I I would now or later if you come back for another episode with us I want to get into more detail of that but right at the moment looking at the kind of jihad that is mostly going on now which is still not the attacks with trucks and guns and knives it's within parts of government right yes to school move, boards yeah you know the pressure for the police force to hire some Muslims mm-hmm. uh, as a matter of fact, I was just reading a police trainer in, from Germany, and he was talking about how, well, we're hiring these Muslims to become policemen, but we don't ask them to learn anything about being a cop in German. That is, but the government wants to cut down on the demand that there be Islamic policemen, and whether or not they meet Germans' criteria for what a good makes a good cop is not important. What's more important is they may be lousy cops who will involve themselves in crime and the reason we say crime is this man went on, went on to say that there were many criminal acts that happened during the police training he gave them usually exchange of drugs mm. or stolen goods okay. but the desire to please Islam is so strong that they're willing to throw over their concepts of what makes a good citizen it's most peculiar how Europe and the United States and others bring their own destruction on themselves it does not come from the outside it comes from the inside no, I totally agree. I, within the government, it's definitely being funded, supported, and directed. But I'm saying within Islam, below the higher-up negative government elements that are trying to bring all this about to crash society and bring in tyranny, which I think is what I see happening, within Islam, what levels of it are directing the political jihad? The answer to the question is... A whole bunch of things and nothing it's at the same time. Islam, if you want if you want to discuss Christianity, and let's say let's take the Catholic, which is the easiest, there is a distinct hierarchy, which is almost like a military hierarchy. Mm-hmm. Well within Islam, there's not much of a hierarchy, it's sort of a flat organization. The mm-hmm. Imam does not have to have a particular kind of training. He can assert himself and become a leader <clears throat> and an Imam by taking some training, but it's mostly his own personal assertion that brings him to a position of power. And if he dies, it doesn't make any difference because the God in the system is the Quran, the Sirah, and the Hadith. Mm-hmm. Anyone can interpret those for themselves. Now, it is encouraged that they follow their religious leaders in the interpretation, but it is capable for anyone to, to, uh, to do so, to reach conclusions based on what's in the doctrine. So it's kind of like the Internet. We, who runs the Internet? Well, the Internet is kind of run by some people and big companies, but in general, the Internet is run by a community that does not ever hold a meeting. And uh, so it's, Islam is somewhat of the same way. That is, if you, you read for your own, you can read these documents yourself and you can reach your own conclusions. So in a strange sense, every Muslim is his own imam. But it's not very unified, is it? Because if you go to a mosque, depending on who the imam is, it could be a focus on the earlier or the later scriptures, couldn't it? Mm-hmm. It depends on which one you go to. People right. shop around for the right mosque to go to. 
But by the way, we have to understand something. In a moderate mosque and a so-called extremist mosque, the same Quran is there. The same Hadith are there. It's just they choose to practice Medina or Mecca, early or late Quran. Do they go with jihad and politics, or do they go with piety and religion? Okay. The okay. same Quran is present in both mosques. It's just which part do they choose to emphasize? It's not like there's a moderate Quran and a extremist Quran. One Quran, the Quran is both moderate and extreme at the same time. Depends right. on which part do you want to read. Do you want to read the latter surahs, eight, nine, and five, or do you want to deal with the early ones? But but one thing you said in connection with your books. Uh, was the reason that they were so useful in interpreting and getting right to the key uh, verses is that it's not written, and certainly after the chapters were cut up and reorganized, it's not really written to be easy to understand. This is true, and I suspect the hand of the priest is what I call it. That is, if you make it complicated, then you need a professional to interpret it. Let me give exactly. you an example in my, in my life. I do not understand the United States tax code. I do not even attempt to understand the United States tax code. I hire a professional, a CPA who prepares my returns for my business and my private life. I can't do it. So therefore, I turn to a professional. Mm -hmm. And that's yeah. what most Muslims do. They turn to a professional. They don't try to interpret it themselves. But if they choose to do so, they can do so. Okay. But it, but it sounded like from what you were saying that all over the country, or at least in big parts of it, there's a, a pretty consistent movement of all these different levels of government and agencies toward a Sharia law outcome. And it yes. seems to me that that requires more than just a, a scattered, you know, assortment of all different um, interpretations of what the scriptures are calling for. Somewhere there's got to be at least a pretty substantial part of those that is organizing people to, you know, take over government, basically. Well, we have two ways of taking over government, external and internal. What we see in America is an internal. Mm -hmm. We have the whole business of political correctness and the rise of the cult of the victim. There's no one who's really in charge in that. The universities play their part. The churches play their part. The mainstream media plays its part. Mm -hmm. But everybody buys into the fact that it, there are minorities who are victims. And right. if they're victims, they're being victimized by an oppressor, such as yourself and myself. Yeah. And so that idea of the role of the oppressor is not really found in any one place. It has somehow or another migrated into our consciousness level as a whole. And so uh, okay. there are players which, who, who benefit from it in the mainstream media in particular. Mm. That is, you need a good enemy, so people such as myself are chosen because I'm loose with the words. And they say, see, Bill is an enemy. He hurts the minor minority people. He's an oppressor. Well, what I'm doing is saying what the facts are. But there are people who use the rules of political correctness to condemn and to condemn me, and probably you as well. Right. Right. But, okay. But so there's no central congress of political correctness. Right. And, and so it's it's much more effective because there's no single leader that it depends on. You cannot assassinate the leader of the politically correct crowd. Right. He doesn't exist. So if you take one level of organization that would be an objective to infiltrate and, and dominate and become the majority in, like, for example, a school board, um, mm -hmm. which I'm sure you, you've seen probably where you're living and other places. Yes, I have. What's the sequence? How, how is that done? Well, let's just take the school board. The school board, most of the people 
elected to it are good people who are hardworking and civic-minded. Now, it turns out that most of them would choose to do this. The conservatives have pretty much abandoned the school board business, and it's mostly, I'm talking about in Tennessee, it's mostly okay. liberals and progressives who run. And so these are all decent people who are kind. They're, they, if, you, if you leave your wallet on the table, they're not going to pick it up. If they take mm -hmm. your daughter to school, they're not going to rape her. Mm -hmm. That is, these are what are called virtuous people. Mm -hmm. But they're also cowards, and they're weak. And so they don't lead from their own assertion. They're, they've been bred to the point where all they do is look to the left and look to the right and make sure that everybody's agreeing with what I say. Mm -hmm. So it's okay. this cohesion. And the, no, here's what happens to people such as myself. I'm called bad names. Well, if you're a Sunday school teacher at a Baptist church, you don't want somebody saying that you're a racist, hater, bigger Islamophobe. Mm -hmm. So therefore, you will do anything to avoid that. Now, you have to understand that when you're dealing with Islam, they are quick to call you bad names. I know because I've been at it happen to me. Right. So, therefore, the easiest thing to do is to always go along. And Islam brings in the pressure of, we're the victim. You know, the reason that you don't tell our story is, is because you don't like us. Well, we'll mm -hmm. tell your story. Well, see, now we like you. But you haven't told the story well enough. We want it to improve. Mm -hmm. You're teaching it only in the seventh grade. It needs to be taught now in the third grade. You mean this is them teaching to the school board authorities? Yes, making pressure and demands. Okay. Now, the people, when the textbook finally gets put into place in the seventh grade in a human geography course, everyone who put that textbook in place is a virtuous person. That's how they see themselves. And they're not Muslims. They're merely trying to please a minority who is being oppressed by people such as myself. So this whole victim business is what plays in the background. And Islam is always the victim. Islam is never ever ever wrong in any detail or anything okay you, I'll, yeah, I'll because to, you, to point out if it was wrong that would make you a racist i assume right a racist or if you're even if you're a muslim and criticizing your own community will call you an apostate got it okay okay they'll call you oh you know you're a kafir and kafir is the most feared word you can use with regards to a muslim one of the well, reasons you know that, it's somebody that god hates for one thing right <laughs> Okay. And by the way, if I'm dealing with Muslims, I always make sure early on that we understand that I am a kafir. Right. And that drives them nuts when I do that. Why? It's true. But it's true, but they don't want... You see, kafir is like the N-word, except it's the K-word. Yeah. And it's so bad that they don't... There is a concept in Islam called takfiri, which is you do not accuse another Muslim of being a kafir. That is a, that's the most serious harm you can do to the community. So when I say I am a kafir... I'm using their dirty word. As a matter of fact, the word is usually kafir hajis, which means filthy kafir. It's sort of like okay. a word. Okay, okay, okay. So, um, hmm. so, so in other words, you're, you're describing the, the school board people in the typical situation or a stereotype situation where um, they want everybody to be pleased. Yes. And, and the people who are Islamic within the school board or within the school community who attend the meetings are asking for certain changes in textbooks, curriculum, procedures in classes, things like mm -hmm. that. Yes, exactly. Okay. Okay. And, and, and so but, when they, the pressure is put on, see, these are a protected minority. And so when they put the pressure on, if you don't yield to their demands, then you're a hater. You're a bigot. You're, you're, you're oppressing the victim, the poor victim. Right. And right. Muhammad never did anything wrong. He was always, his opponents were always wrong. He was never wrong. Right, right, right. Particularly, at, well, you're talking about after the revelation, right? Yeah. After he started the, becoming the prophet. Okay.
All right. And so what's the objective of this kind of activity in the school board? For the Sharia to become the rule of law. Okay. The actual well, rule of law. In practical, everyday life, what would that mean? Well, it would mean, for instance, that there's a school room in the school system. There's a room for prayer. In the business, the assembly line stops when it's time for prayer. In that you can, you, you, you don't have, ta- you, that is, for instance, they may demand that you don't have tests given during Ramadan because during Ramadan you've been fasting. Mm-hmm. So the pressures can, can become many. That is, that the girl be allowed to wear not just not only a hijab, but a niqab, which is the face covering. So the demand Alla- allowed or required. Allowed, that is that there be no resistance to the Sharia anywhere. That's what the textbooks c- correlate to uh, the Sharia. That's the pur- the purpose of Islam is to bring the Sharia, not to convert every human being. It's okay. a political demand, not a re- conversion religious demand. But if the system of law, you're, see, there's one thing I'm not clear on, and that's whether the request is to allow Sharia law for anybody that wants it or uh, to make Sharia the law for everybody. The law for everybody. Let me give an example of halal food. There's a demand right now in the Ohio prisons that all food served in the prisons be halal. So if you're a prisoner, you will eat halal food no matter what your faith is. What's the definition of halal for people that don't know that? Oh, it's the same. It's, it's Islamic kosher. That is, food okay. is prepared in a certain way it, it is Islamic kosher. That's an excellent sort of, quote, translation of what halal means. Right. Okay, so, so they want that, the prison converted to that. And here's another example. When Muslims started coming to England, the concept of the piggy bank, did you have a piggy bank? Yeah, I did. It, well, they broke, but I got new ones. Right. Well, it used to be that if you came in and you were a child and you, you set up a savings account, the bank would give you a piggy bank. Well, the right. Muslims hit England, and they pretty soon says that is offensive to Allah. Pigs are filthy animals. We don't want any bank to give away any pigs. They so even say, though you're not eating your piggy bank, it's still bad? It's still bad, okay? Okay. okay. So they demanded that, and, and the banks just rolled over and said, okay, we don't want to offend anybody, particularly a minority, so therefore we will, we will not give any more piggy banks away to any English citizen because it offends a minority. Okay. That's what I mean about everyone has to be live under the Sharia. Well, I guess what I'm getting at is beyond that, Sharia has certain um, punishments for things, right? Mm-hmm. So does that start applying to everybody as well? It does indeed. Now, let's be clear here. No government lives entirely on the Sharia, and no government implements all of the Sharia except places like Islamic State and Saudi Arabia. Most Muslims, when they, they do not want anything to do with a Sharia that includes cutting off of hands and stoning women for uh, sexual impropriety. Right. They don't want that. But uh, yet, how, any, any Muslim who doesn't want all of the Sharia is really an apostate. Yeah, that must make a terrible conflict for them, because they're not supposed to be against anything that's required. Well, Richard, these are human beings, and let me tell you something. They, a human being can find a way in denial to do come up with anything he wants to. I mean, that's just my observation. Yeah, Most people I've seen will that. Work, take what they want and work backwards to get there. Right. They'll, so they'll so do you think that's, like, that's why there's no government totally implementing Sharia laws, because there's no place where everybody wants it? Yes. I mean, everybody looks... 
I don't want to on Friday in Nashville, Tennessee, to be able to take my grandkids and go down to this legislative square and see people's heads being cut off. And yet that is one of our favorite outdoor sports in Saudi Arabia. But most people reject that. And even there are Saudis who are now rejecting it themselves. You see, they have a sneaking suspicion that that's not right. Okay. Okay. Interesting. So, I, so I'm trying to grasp what the objective is if it's not total implementation of Sharia. Well, they want most of it, but not all of it. I think that would be the best way to put it. Okay. Uh, Turkey, for instance, doesn't want to be chopping off heads, but they don't mind throwing critics in prison. So tyranny expresses itself in many ways. Okay, so are there any places where they think it's okay to throw homosexual people off buildings? Well, Islamic State is the only one that does it in a public fashion. Usually what happens is they don't, they're throwing them off of public buildings. Usually what, what they do in Iran is they just hang them, which is I not see. as spectacular. Okay. All right, but they're still doing it. I mean, oh, they, yeah, they're, no, they're still, still doing they're it. They're still right. killing people. Okay, so the, so are the I've met I have friends from Iran and they're not they don't have that mentality at all. They're very westernized and they're not in favor of really hanging anybody that's not hurting anyone else. Where where, where did you meet these people? Uh, I was working with them in a scientific laboratory. Yes, you were not in Iran is my point. Oh no, they were in America for sure. They left Iran because of Sharia law. Yeah, they talked about how crazy the mullahs there were. Yes. The mullahs, actually in Iran, I've heard from more than one source, there is a chance of is the Islamic State collapsing in uh, the far too distant future. And the reason is the young people in Iran despise Sharia. They despise the mullahs. They despise them because they see how corrupt they are. And wow. they, they mock and make fun of them. So the day will come in which, because it's, it's oppressive, Right. I do not know of a woman who literally wants to dress up in a black bag with a black black face mask. That's yeah, women, most women don't wake up in the morning saying, "Oh, it'd be fun. It'd be kind of fun to go out today in the hefty bag look." Yeah, I hope it's over 120 outside. Huh? Right. So yeah, I, I wondered about that myself. So and I've seen pictures of some of the cities in Iran, and they look like California. Yes. But after the Ayatollah came in, the Sharia was, what's happened is once the Sharia was put into place in its full form, people mm -hmm. reject it. And so the Islamic State of Korea, of Iran, will one day collapse of too much Sharia. Interesting. So maybe in a, a more common objective in this infiltration of school boards and all that is, I guess you're talking about some kind of a moderate implementation of Sharia. We, I think that's a right word to use is a moderate implement but they want ultimately for sharia to be in the top position because sharia is allah's law and ours is a man-made law yeah you, you may think highly of the constitution but they think more highly of the hadith right 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 and if if it came straight from god you would understand that so and i know i've i've had some at least brief conversations with um some pretty hardline muslim leaders and they said well, obviously, you want Sharia law because it comes from God. Who wouldn't want God's law? And you know, that's basically the end of the way, When they put it that way, it seems reasonable. Why wouldn't you want God's law? Which God? Uh, yeah, we didn't get to that part. But, <laughs> I mean, they, they didn't say it was just one particular God. They just said it was God. That was it. Well, of course, what they said it was was Allah. 
Yeah, well, these guys were speaking English, and they put it in the terms of God. They, they, they were said being clever. Yeah, they just said it's God's law. Are you saying you're against God's law? I'm against Allah's law. Let's put this as the answer that I would give. Yeah, it's pretty severe in some ways, and it involves hating huge sections of humanity. Well, one of my strongest objections about God's law is the 12 verses which say that a Muslim is not really my true friend. I'm offended by that. I think it's ridiculous. Right. I think it's right. absurd. Right. So let's take that, Allah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure Allah will be calling in on Saturday to complain right. about something. Actually, on Friday. That's his, that's his day. Uh, oh, he can't call on Saturday, you're saying? Well, the Juma prayer is the best prayer because it occurs on Friday, and I forget why that is. I'm just well, saying. I just said that because Saturday is our live call-in show. Oh, <laughs> that's the only day open. So, but that would be very interesting, anyway. So, if school boards are taken over, I mean, theoretically, and if the objective is achieved, then I assume the textbooks would be, have to be changed. Yes, and you'd mentioned, and all reference to Christianity would simply disappear. All reference to Judaism would just disappear. Street names change, okay. history, and in general, history disappears. When you study history in Pakistan, it begins with the invasion of Islam in the year of whatever. There is no okay. history in Pakistan that precedes Islam, and that's what happens. Is wow, that that's interesting. History is rewritten, or history is forgotten. So do you know, you mentioned Pakistan, do you know about what year Islam started in Pakistan? Well, it's whenever the invasion was, which was probably about 1000 AD, roughly. Okay, okay. But that's when, that's when the history starts. And if you live in Afghanistan, you don't learn nothing of the history of Buddhism. I mean, it simply is not taught. And Afghanistan was a Buddhist country, right? A, it was not only a Buddhist country, it was wealthy and powerful. And okay. had beautiful art. Wow, wow. And so, and Afghanistan, when did all that stop in Afghanistan? Do you remember roughly? The prosperity stopped when Islam invaded. I mean, it's very easy. Right, but I mean, so that was somewhere between 630 and 1000. Yes, somewhere in there. And I don't know, I do not know the exact date. Okay. About, I think about 800 AD. All right. So generally, history is erased, is what you're saying, right? Yes. Prior history to is Islam. erased. The foundation of government is erased. That is. What happens is, is that no law that the country passes can conflict with Sharia law. Okay, so, and that, that goes right together with tearing down monuments and historical buildings and things like that, that ISIS, you can figure if ISIS is doing it, it's exactly per the scriptures. Well, the historical antecedent for this is when Muhammad captured Mecca, he left Mecca, went to Medina, became strong and reinvaded later and captured Mecca. Yeah. With his own hands, he went to the Kaaba. There were religious objects from 360 religions in the Kaaba. He destroyed some of them with his own hand and ordered a fire be built and that all of them be destroyed. Okay, okay. So the art is destroyed because it's religious art and nothing religious is allowed to exist in a historical fashion. It was the when the French invaded Egypt under Napoleon, mm -hmm. the... Muslims who were there had no explanation for what the pyramids were or the temples were. They just said, oh, the jinns built them. Right. The reason right. is, is the whole history of the pharaohs had been erased. Okay, okay. So anything that's not Islamic was done by evil spirits, basically. Right, and it's, uh, why would you want to teach the history of evil? So therefore, that history just disappears. 
Got it. Okay. Yeah, this was prior to enlightenment, which is the beginning of the Islamic rule. Right. Right. Okay. It, but it was the it was the English and the French who made the Pharaonic Egypt known to us. Okay. It was not the Muslims. Oh, I see. They I had see. no interest. They had no interest in the subject at all. As yeah, a matter of fact, one of the one of the things that happens is in Iraq, most people didn't notice this when Saddam Hussein fell. One of the things that happened was they broke into the museums and started destroying art treasures. Yeah, because Saddam was not a hardline Islamist at all. No, right? he was a convenient Muslim. Yeah, yeah, I he, was also, I he was also Muslims working said, working with the U.S. in many ways. I knew Iraqi Muslims who said Saddam is a Muslim when the cameras turned on. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Exactly. So he was preserving the. Things in the museums and things. Well, not like only that. that. Here's how un-Islamic he was. His Secretary of State was a Christian. Huh. Wow. Okay. So, as a matter of fact, <clears throat> the Christians were used a lot in such roles because they didn't. <clears throat> Christians were used a lot in such roles because they were outside of the normal tribal rivalries. I see. Okay. So the idea was they could be more impartial in a way, right? Exactly. They were not. They were not so given to infighting. And they're allowed to be dimmies, so they could mm -hmm. live that way, right? As long is as that, they don't badmouth Muhammad, they can continue to exist. Yeah. So, That's so is all that, gone. Is that how some of the Christians are surviving in places like Pakistan and Turkey now? They have to keep their heads down. Turkey's not as bad as Pakistan, but of course, that's not saying a lot, and almost nothing is as bad as Pakistan. Okay. By the way, here's an interesting thing. Pakistan is poor and violent. Sitting right next to it on its eastern border is India, which is wealthy, yes. and, well, wealthy to some degree, at least has a large portion of its population is wealthy, yeah. and it is, it is not violent. These people are DNA the same. That is, if you took DNA samples, because Pakistan used to be Hindustan. Right, right. And so right. the reason that they're genetically the same, now one of the things that has changed is the genetics have deteriorated in Pakistan because... One of the dreadful things about Sharia is it allows you to marry your first cousin. Okay, okay. You do that for a few generations and you wind up with villages where there's a lot of insanity, crime, mm -hmm. and people aren't mm -hmm. very bright. Yeah, yeah, the same thing happened to British royalty over long periods. Um, any, any race that does that, I think that happens to them. So, well, so what, what is life inside a... I guess what if Pakistan is what ninety nine point seven percent Muslim right now. Something yep. like that. And if you're a Christian, you better walk lightly because the wrong, the wrong. One woman got stoned because she offered a Muslim a drink of water from a, a vessel that she had put her lips on. Okay. Right. 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 So what is what is daily life like in a in a country where it's completely taken over like that? Well, check out Saudi Arabia. You have abusive women. You have intolerance around other people. You, an interesting story, if you want to do, if you were an investigative reporter, is to report what happens to the Filipinos and the Hindus who go to Saudi Arabia to work. Mm -hmm. it, okay. is not, it is not nice. It is slavery without the chains. And if you're a, if you're a Philippine woman who comes to work as a uh, servant inside of an Islamic house, the chances are you will be raped and the husband's wife won't even care. Right. Now, so why did the people go travel all that distance to work there? Have you ever heard of money, cash, yeah, mullah, yeah. long right. green, dead right. presidents? Yeah, 
Yeah, so they have a lot of that over there, I guess. Well, there's a lot of poverty, and, and then the Saudis have money. But those who do the work, particularly the construction work, are brutalized. Mm. Okay. Interesting. So I guess the question is, you know, after all of your experience ex- explaining this in university, you're still talking at universities, right? You're not totally If banned. they'll invite me. I haven't been to a university in probably five years. Universities are no longer a place where critical thought is practiced. Yeah, I know. Uh, students don't have to study Shakespeare because Shakespeare was a white man. Uh, yes. Re- reasoning, reasoning is not allowed. Instead, if you, the same rule is there. If you offend any minority, then you're a bigot, hater, racist. And let me tell you something. Universities are a closed society, and there's not that many jobs for English literature teachers. And so people, I find, I spent eight years in the university, and I find that the average university professor is somewhat of a weak willy, and that he, if your specialty is chemistry, Mm-hmm. You can get a job in industry, but it's an easier life in the university. And so to keep your job, most people are willing to go along to get along. And so as a result, universities no longer practice critical thought. See, yeah. under critical thought, you can ask any question. Any question is a valid question. Uh, yeah, in fact, it's necessary to find new questions if you're really trying to expand knowledge. I agree with you 100%. But in the university, that's not the case. You want to keep your job. And so since your job consists of teaching Elizabethan sonnets, if you have to suck it up to deal with some piece of political BS, you just do it. Right, 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 right. Yeah, the, the money thing is a pretty strong incentive to give up honesty, basically, in so many different ways. It's incredible. That's my problem in society is that I'm willing to say something even if I suffer consequences. Yeah, I can see how that wouldn't be that popular. But, you know, I guess it's it's all comes back to a question of consciousness. If you're aware of principles and things that you feel that you have to be true to, then the consequences are just there and it's it's not really a factor in your decision. It's not mine, but it's... it's uh, I'm a little odd, Richard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and the, the Southern Poverty Law Center thing of calling these people, you know, who are telling the truth in, in really important ways, haters, is, is interesting. You, you think of a name like Southern Poverty Law Center, and you just know they're out there helping starving people in the South to, you know, fight back against uh, murderous landlords and things like that. Right, right, right. But when you when you have a when you have a net savings account of one-third of a billion dollars, the poverty part sort of rings, doesn't ring true, does it? Well, they're just really frugal, you know, that's why. Oh, that's it. They also yeah. spend very little of their money on lawsuits. They, right. they spend less than 1% of their money with lawsuits that oppose oppression. Right. So, you know, after, so where, if the universities are not too open to what you have to say at this point, given what you just explained, where are you mostly talking? Mostly I don't do personal presentations anymore. I use the web. There's okay. a reason for this that's personal. I don't like to get on an airplane and go anywhere. I travel for only two reasons, to give a talk on Islam, to meet about Islam, or to visit my family. Sure. I never associate getting on an airplane with fun, so therefore my vacations are closer to home. Yeah, yeah, I completely identify with that. So since I can sit here doing this interview with you in, the, in my own office, I, when I, we get through here, I'll stand up and walk into the next room and have supper. To be able to do that, and I reach more people. What happened was, is that I, uh, 
gave an accidental video when I gave a talk. A guy said, could I video it? I said, yes. It was Why We Are Afraid. It was the name of the talk I'd never given him before. It. Yeah. Posted it. I got 100,000 views in one month, and I went, whoa. <laughs> I've just affected more people without leaving home than I ever have. So I immediately cut back. I used to give like two or three talks a week, which is, if you have to travel to do it, is exhausting. Oh, that's, that's incredible, yeah. So I, I just... Pretty much, I turned down opportunities to talk and just say, no, it's easier for me to do videos. And I just affect a lot more people. I mean, on YouTube, I've got 30,000 followers. Right. I can't right. talk to 30,000 people in the auditorium. That would be no. fun if I could. Yeah, yeah, there's no way. So, as far as your, in your current state of, of explaining all these things, other than telling people the problems, what do you think the goal and the ideal outcome would be if you get if you get success the way you want it? The goal would be this, is that people would understand Islam's doctrine and history, and when they meet Muslims, they would start asking them questions about their religion and their, poli and their political system and their history. Because most Muslims don't know the truth, and by asking questions, you can teach them the truth. I know of a man who's an evangelist, among, a Christian evangelist amongst Muslims, and he never teaches about Christianity until he's taught them thoroughly about Islam. Then he asked him, is this what you really want for a religion? Is Muhammad really your messenger? Right. And so... And you already said that most people don't want to follow all of what's in the scriptures anyway, right? Right. So, so what my goal would be in life is that every Muslim would be asked questions about their religion and their political system by someone who knows what it is, and that it would not be the kind of thing, and if you were pressed on issues, pretty soon you don't want to be known as a Muslim anymore. And so you will drift away from it. So you and would that, encourage Muslims to learn about Islam? It's really odd. I'm considered a hater and a racist because I try to teach Muhammad to Muslims as well as everyone else. Right. Isn't that bizarre? Yeah, I think that's a, a really succinct way, a clear way to characterize what you're trying to do, though. is You, you want to teach what Islam really is, not, not distorted, to two groups of people. First, Muslims, and second, everybody else. Right. And because I want to teach about Muhammad and teach about Allah, I'm considered a hater. Yeah, I mean, it's getting to the point where every, anybody who tells the truth is considered a hater at this point. So I think you're right. We have a disease in our society. You know, people, here's what I've noticed. The most intolerant people you'll ever meet are those who discuss tolerance all the time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and the biggest oppressors you'll ever meet are those who talk about victims all the time. Right, right. It's pretty amazing. I mean, things are not exactly as they seem on the surface. <laughs> so, I, I want people to follow everything you're doing. So, can they get on an email list to pick up all the videos you're doing? And, and where do they go to get the books and things like that? Well, I have a website, politicalislam.com, that runs my bookstore. On YouTube, I have a channel called Political Islam. Okay. Twitter, I have at um, Political Islam. So I have all kinds of web kind of devices you can get through to me. And okay. uh, if you ever want to contact me by email, you can do so from my website. Okay. To answer Perfect. questions. Yeah, that sounds great. So, I mean, we've only just, you know, hardly at all scratched the surface of this topic, which makes the time go really fast. But I hope we can do further installments as time allows in the future, too. And, um,. Thank you. I really appreciate the uh, inspiration. Well, I appreciate you, Richard. You're, you, I tell my wife you're the easiest interview that I do. <laughs> it's, it's always just fun. Right. So, see, right. I, see, I think that learning about this stuff is fun. 
I mean, I, I really I love, do. I love learning history and, and everything else, too. I mean, it seems to me that, that the depth of what you can experience in a really brief lifetime is directly connected to how much you're open to learning about what's going on. Well, I love it. I'm a 76-year-old man, and I learn something new every day. Yeah, yeah. You seem really young to me. So, well, I, uh, I, I, I may be 76, but I don't act it. No, no, and I hope you don't start to. So I, mean, I, I keep working on that. <laughs> Hold on, and we'll say goodbye in the break here. <laughs> 